So is this the Brando cast? This is the Brando cast. Holy shit. Yeah. I thought I was doing the other thing. If I was known as a Brando cast, I would have fucking got a little more sleep. Fucking You're, stretched. Did you, uh, did you uh, push the record? Yes. Oh, fuck yeah. Okay, great. Welcome. It's time for, well, an incredibly special episode of the Brando cast. Sitting across the table from me today is a man who I knew that I needed to come on this show because, like me, he is a lover of rock, he's a lover of music, he is a professional musician, but more importantly, he is a citizen of Los Angeles, California. Sitting with me today, you might know him as just Justin from around the block. You might know him as Justin who plays basketball with me. You might know him as Justin from She Wants Revenge. Ladies and gentlemen, Justin Warfield. Hello. Hell fucking low. That's a really amazing intro. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm super excited that you're here because... This show today is custom made for you. As soon as you said yes to doing this podcast, the the subject matter came straight into my head. Okay. Like a fucking bullet. But I will say this before we get started because I'm so excited about the Cruel World Festival. It's nuts. It's nuts. Happening, cats and kittens, on May 2nd at the Dignity Health Sports <laughs> Facility, otherwise known as the Soccer Stadium in Carson, California, yeah. by the airport, is Morrissey, yeah. Bauhaus, uh-huh. Blondie, Devo, Psychedelic Furs, Echo and the Bunnymen, Gary Newman, yeah. Mark Allman, English Beat, The Church, and... Most importantly, she wants revenge. Right, but missing persons. Missing persons on the the bill. Gene loves Jezebel. Gene loves Jezebel. Yeah, I forgot the two most important bands on that lineup. And then, like, sort of this other great element, which, like, the 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 newest generation, the Black Marble, TRST, Drab Majesty, the young kids on the bill, who I like to call the fourth generation of this sort of spirit of music because it's not wave. united would you call it fourth wave what would you call it <laughs> well some it was funny on facebook i i rarely go on facebook and i i was mentioned and i looked and it was in regard to the cruel world fest uh, announced and this one guy was like what the hell is she wants revenge doing on the bill <laughs> 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 you know and uh and, and i don't usually engage with this but it was too good and he was like this is crazy they're not even of that era and so i very delicately was like with all due respect, um, you're not really. You either are ignorant to who is on the undercard of this, mm-hmm. and don't or don't know the bands on that, or you're not really looking at, at it with clear eyes. Which is, you have bands that are known as '80s bands that, in fact, started in the '70s, whether it's late '70s or not. Yep. If you look at Echo and the Bunny Man, if you look at the psychic, psychedelic furs, and if you look at Bauhaus, all those bands were late '70s bands who I call the sons of Bowie because they all three you can take them right back to David Bowie. Fuck yeah. So the three sort of four sons of Bowie bands, right? And then you get a little bit later into like early 80s and then you're in the Morrissey Smiths era. Right. And then there's other pure 80s bands. And even though English Beat is a late 70s, early 80s, they're really the the outlier musically. But 
it's sort of the, the fan of this lineup would like them too. And then you sort of can jump forward to pure mid eighties getting into, you know, the missing persons and some of those other bands. Right. And sort of some of them are escaping me. Then you jump forward and there's the late eighties. They feel like early nineties, the Gene loves Jezebels. And then there's, there's the bands like, uh, like us, which like, you know, if you look at a uh, London after midnight or us, like we're the early aughts. And then there's, the bands that are like of the last five or six years, like TRST, Drab Majesty, who are like, you go to the goth clubs, that's who's being played. Oh, so wow. that's like really four waves I love of, of a certain type of dark, romantic dance music or melodic sort of alternative rock. Just give me that bass. Just yeah. give me that new wave bass and a new wave drum and I am fucking happy because as you know, I'm metal. Yeah. But I was secretly always, I love fucking Depeche Mode. Yeah. I love New Order. Totally. I love all that shit. Well, you're a song guy. I'm a song guy. Yeah. But also, I was in college in the mid 80s. So all this was, right. this, this is this what all we started. To. This was college rock. Before it was alternative, we Huge, called it college big rock. Big time. Of course. Yeah. And as you said, the Sons of Bowie, yeah. the Sons of Roxy Music. I mean, yeah. I fucking love it all. This is my Coachella. Yeah. I am turning to super producer Richard Sheltinga, who's here with us today as well. Say hi. Hello. Hello. And I'm, I'm begging Richard and our friend Ahmed Zappa, we must do a rock tales episode from, the, from backstage? the backstage of this show somewhere let's just set up a tent in the parking lot of the soccer stadium because we have to be there yeah uh, we'll I, do it everyone yeah. i fucking love i mean echo and the bunnyman i mean it's just it's it, insane yeah it's insane and for me personally like it's super funny so like when i was in that rant with the guy I was like listen we've played with echo you have we've we've, we've done a festival and a direct opening slot for Echo twice. Fuck yeah. And we've toured with the Psychedelic Furs. We've toured with Peter Murphy. Um, and I just sort of, I've said, I brought Terry Nunn up on stage from Berlin. You like, did? And, uh, yeah, and like just brought her up on stage at, at a show at the Canyon Club and was like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. I mean, Dale and Terry Bozio, huge influence. So right. the through line of influence as well as connections and relationships, these are all a lot of people that are going to be stoked to see each other. Like, it's sort of like desert trip for like yeah for me like for Brandon Smith people yeah. yeah big time and we don't have to go out to the desert no and, but also like a, a dream tour would be Bauhaus and you guys you yeah. know what I mean like that yeah. would be a fucking insane night yeah you know it's gonna be crazy and it's is it everyone in Bauhaus do you know is it Daniel yeah. J? Is it? Yeah, it's the original lineup who reunited because wow. they just also announced like a world tour. Okay. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I mean, it was even a surprise to us because we were actually supposed to do something in November with Bauhaus uh -huh. and, and like people were freaking out about them being reunited. We saw them reunited in 2006 when She Wants Revenge first started and we were literally like at Swing House's rehearsal room in West Hollywood and we heard them playing like dark entries through the wall Damn. and we had our ears to the door. And a few minutes later, this guy bursts in the room when we we're playing and it's this guy with this British accent and he's like, who are you? I love you. You are guys are amazing. And it was their lighting guy, right? Martin <laughs> Phillips, who said, who said, you guys are incredible and I want to do your lights and I want to be a part of this. And we started up a friendship with him. We had a connection to, to Daniel Ash and, and the sort of two camps aligned when we ended up playing Coachella. Yeah. Um, he did our lights as well as the Daft Punk pyramid that year. Cause we had lined one stage Daft Punk did the other and he's their guy. So we met Peter, we met all of them. We ended up touring with Peter. So we saw them when they were first reformed. So we weren't freaking out as much when they did those three palladium shows. However, we were supposed to do something with them in November that fell through mm -hmm. because they were going to do the palladium. Right. So then we heard that's coming back around. You're going to do something with Bauhaus. And we were like, cool. Then they said, actually Morrissey's doing it too. We said, great. <laughs> and then they said, so is Blondie and the psych furs who 
are good friends of ours. And I was like, not Blondie, but the Furs. And I was like, yeah. this is going to be great. Had no idea who else was on the lineup. So when they did the announce, like my guitar player sent me and I was like, oh, fuck, this is crazy. It's insane. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's going to be a giant convention of like the Latino Morrissey fans, mm. the goth kids, mm. the Deep Valley kids. I mean, it's people, I would travel. If it's, I lived in another city, I would buy uh, a fucking airplane. People are. People yeah, are messaging me like I'm buying tickets. And the other thing is it's going to like span generations. Like there's going to be 25-year-old kids and there's going to be 65-year-old women. Like, yeah, absolutely. And like it's amazing. It's well, going to be fun. Congratulations for being on that bill. Thank you. Man. I'm so excited about it. Yeah. Richard, we're going to be there. Yeah, you will. Okay, we're going to be talking to kids. Yeah, we will. Talking to Latino Morrissey fans. <laughs> uh, but the reason that I wanted you in here today, I think you've heard the Brando cast before, and usually what I do is I read the, someone the history of a band that they might like or might not know or whatever, and yeah. we just see where the conversation goes. Okay. But I've done, I'm doing something different with you today. All right. I love Los Angeles so much, Okay. There are really only two people in my life who I think love L.A. more than me. Can I guess? Um, you can guess. Rob Montalbano. And? Myself. I can't. I should have written it down on a piece of paper. <laughs> bing, 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 bing. Yeah. The two of you. Yeah. Why did Rob come to your head? Rob, when I met you, one of the reasons I felt an immediate affinity was something about your energy reminded me of Rob. And you have more energy and more enthusiasm. But as I introduce Rob to people and have so for the last 20 years, whenever I say, hey, you don't know this guy, I say, hey, this is the best guy in Los Angeles. This is Rob Montalbano. And I literally introduced him as the best guy in Los Angeles. Because to me, he's the best guy in Los he's Angeles. He's the best guy in Los Angeles. <laughs> and yes. uh, he loves LA and he loves the Lakers and he has a sense of, of Los Angeles Angelino pride in a way that I do. Uh, he's he's just really true to it, and he's just such a good example of it. I think. And as are you. Oh, thank you. As are you. So for today, yeah, what we are going to do on the Brando cast mm -hmm. is I'm basically going to play you. Rolling down. Mm -hmm. I don't know, five or six of my favorite L.A. songs. Okay. And we're going to see where the conversation goes. Amazing. Starting off with one of the penultimate songs about Los Angeles. Absolutely. Where does this take you when you hear this? It takes me to streamers, purple, purple and gold streamers, every time we win a home game at the Staples Center. As a lifelong Laker fan and a season ticket holder, it's uh, it's nice to hear the song played because it means that we're winning. And after six years of the drought and no postseason, it's nice to uh, be in the plus column and not the minus column. Also, I love Randy Newman. It reminds me of Los Angeles in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it's just the fucking best. It's Randy Newman's I Love LA. It's a song about Los Angeles, California. Originally released on his 1983 album, Trouble in Paradise. And Great it, album cover. Immediately, album cover. immediately became a staple at Lakers game. So you're yeah. saying, as a someone who grew up going to see the Lakers, yeah. they would play the song when they won. Well, I don't remember whether or not they only played it in victory at the forum where I grew up going to games. But in my years as a Staples Center attendee, they play it when we win. <laughs> they don't play it when we lose. Right. Um, 
But yeah, this just reminds me of all things LA, man. Were you going to Laker games during the glory era and the eighties? I was. So I tell me, I, my dad worked at a record company and so he would get tickets sometimes and we'd go to the forum and I would get to watch not only magic and my favorite at the time, Jamal Wilkes and uh-huh. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Norm Nixon, and later on Byron Scott, AC Green, Kurt Rambis, all of that. I was really all about it. But also, we had access to the Forum Club, which times were different, and athletes weren't brands, so when you went to a game, if you had access, you could go into the Forum Club, and then I would see Magic, and he would give me a high five, and I'd go, great game, Magic, and then he would go have a drink, and I'd see Kareem or Michael Cooper, and I would see all of the legends, and they would just dap up and high five a kid, because they'd be hanging out, and you weren't asking for an autograph, you were just... You know, you knew you belonged in the room and you hung out and it's not like that anymore. So that was my experience. And then I later went to Norm Nixon basketball camp at Pepperdine University. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I'm really, I'm I'm deep. That is fantastic. How was the Norm Nixon camp? It was great. And most significant thing that happened was, um, it was a predominantly black camp. And as a mixed kid, I definitely stood out a little bit being much lighter than everyone, but there was actually maybe a couple of white kids. Like still have the photo on my wall. And one of them was a guy by the name of Nick Adler and okay. it was Lou Adler's Lou son. Adler's son. <laughs> and we struck up a fast friendship at camp and then started hanging out and we're friends to this day. Wow. And he runs all of the food and beverage for Golden Voice for all the festivals, Coachella, everything. If you have a great food truck that you dig there or you're having an amazing like vegan experience or just eating like spicy pie in the VIP, all that is Nick's doing. And he ran the Roxy for years for his dad. Uh, and his father <laughs> sat in the chair. Yeah, it's him Next and Jack. To Jack Nicholson. The, still has the chair. The two best seats in the house. Lou Adler still has the chair. Lou and Lou and yeah, absolutely. Lou and Jack still have the best seats in the house. Now, so for people who don't know, Lou Adler was arguably one of the biggest music producers in the '60s. Period. Right, but like also more importantly, Lou was a Jewish guy from Boyle Heights who was a true, true like Angelino, who was a big record producer. Mamas and the Papas discovered Cheech and Chong as a stand-up act, made their records, produced their movies. But more importantly, and this is the part that gets overlooked sometimes, is that Lou partnered up. Well, there's a guy by the name of Elmer Valentine, and they need to make a film about him. They most certainly need to do more than just the Vanity Fair article that came out about 18 years ago. But Elmer Valentine was a crooked Chicago PD beat cop who, as he told me (laughs) while I would sit rolling joints for him when he was (laughs) in his 80s, um, he would put on a mask with his buddy and go rob a card game, an underground (laughs) card game, and then go back and take off the mask and put on their cop clothes and report, you know, respond to the investigation that there was a break in. And he was a guy who went to Paris in the 60s and there's a club called the Whiskey Go-Go. And he's like, this is a great idea. And so he took his Chicago money, he moved to Los Angeles, and he started the London Fog and the Trip and the Roxy and the Rainbow and the Whiskey Go-Go. And he said, listen, I'm a brains guy, but I'm not hip. And he found a young producer and hipster name, Lou Adler, and said, will you book the, the whiskey for me and bring in your Hollywood friends? So Steve McQueen and everybody of the day would come and he would get all the acts. But basically 
Lou helped make the Sunset Strip. Lou and Elmer Valentine created the Sunset Strip. Jesus Christ. He's one of the most incredible people in the history of rock and roll. Wow. And Lou is right there with him. Like, the two of them did it together. Damn. It's heavy. Ahmed Zappa's uh, mother, Gail, worked at the box office at uh, the Whiskey Go-Go. Holy fucking that's shit. That's where that's she met Yeah. That's wow. absolutely, and that's deep. Give me your favorite Laker memory as a child. A favorite game, just a favorite experience, even if it was Magic Johnson giving you a high five. Like, do you, do you can you remember like I don't, a game? I don't or, have like that photographic memory, like of Bill Simmons or someone that could tell you like the shot or the score. But I could tell right. you like what was really exciting to me was not only having access to those players, but one of the real benefits was, you know, being somebody who's turning forty-seven. I was able to see Dr. J play. Yeah. Oh, you're right. right on right, my right. home court. Yeah. I was yeah, able yeah. to see Michael Jordan play on my yep. home court. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was, so those are the things. Wow. You know. Um, I don't know. And then the championships. I mean, the 80s run of championships. It was incredible. It was incredible. I still like when I wear Lakers merch, I wear three-peat stuff from back then. You know what I mean? I don't wear like the 90s stuff or the news or the the Kobe Pow years. Like that's my generation. You know what I mean? I really, and I was always much more of a Kareem and Magic guy than I was a Shaq Kobe guy. Like just by virtue of age. Right. Did you hate hate the Celtics as much as uh, you were supposed to? Absolutely. I went to Kobe's last game against the Celtics (laughs) and two Celtics fans almost got in a fight. Really? Actually, it was a Laker fan and a Celtics fan. It was incredible. But, you know, I really um, I hated the Celtics more more than anything in the world until now my hatred for the Clippers has usurped that. Okay. Yeah. Do you feel like that's a kind of a new thing because the Clippers are competing with the Lakers for oh, absolutely. the heart of Los Angeles? All right. I mean, they'll never win it, but right. they're, they're certainly trying to buy it with this whole like propaganda sort of Joseph Goebbels campaign of like earned over given and all that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Look at this. this is right in. Two. Right in. Right in. To it. Knew it was coming. The symbol grabs. I mean, who listens to the song and doesn't do the symbol grabs? It's great. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Los Angeles by X. The title track from their debut studio album of the same name was released on April 26, 1980. And it was produced by X-Doors keyboard player Ray Manzarek. X, Los Angeles. A tr- I mean, basically every other rock song is yeah. about Los Angeles. Yeah. Especially after your first album. If your first album comes out, you move to Los Angeles or California. Yeah. You start snorting coke in fancy houses. Then most of the songs you write are about LA. Sure. But this is about the side of Los Angeles that I love. The, the Doors, dirty. Jane's Addiction, and yes. you yes. know the Doors, Jane's Addiction, and X side. The Doors, Jane's Addiction, and Exide. The, the Underbelly. Yeah. yeah, the Underbelly. Yeah. The and corner were... of Hollywood and Wilcox. <laughs> <laughs> or back then, like Hollywood and Western. Right. Or, you know, I totally. mean, Silver Lake when it was sketchy sketch. Totally. Not cool, cool, trust fund city like it is now. Right. You know what I'm saying? For yeah, sure. X, Los Angeles. That's huge for me because X is one of my that my came later. Bands. That came later for me. Okay. I love, it's funny, like, so X is the band where I really love this album i love songs like johnny hit and run pauline and your phone's off the hook and like uh what's what's the other is it nausea mm-hmm. yeah like i like there's something fundamentally i love about the discordant harmonies about the guitar about the vibe about the sort of um the feminine mixed with the masculine my thing with them is i think that it's one of those bands where 
It's like I really like Run the Jewels. I love the group Run the Jewels. Okay. But I don't know that I actually like love their fans because there's like a lot of broy <laughs> fans. You know what I mean? So like I'm super pumped to see them at Coachella because Run the Jewels is like legit one of the best rap groups out there. Right. But like some of their fans are sort of like, um, like you know, when you go to like a bar and they play like Moni Moni or like Violent Femmes. Like yeah. my friend often says how Violent Femmes is one of the most incredible groups ever. But like the sort of they wrote the worst song for frat guys. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And, and so, it like, ruins them a little I bit. feel like X fans, like, I don't really like rockabillies. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very, that's a very nice way of saying yeah. what their crowd their, is. Their crowd is a little white, a yeah. little greaser, a yeah. little like, and the Latino contingent, I'm all about. Absolutely. But there's a certain thing about X, I don't know. But musically, it's pretty unimpeachable. When did they? Wh- no, no. Where did you grow up exactly in the city of Los Angeles? I grew up in an area we called it North Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, but it's now called West Toluca Lake. <laughs> so because you're a valley dude, you're right. I'm going to tell you exactly where I grew up. Okay. I grew up down the street from Little Tony's. Okay. I live up the street from Little Tony's yeah. right now. Yeah. So back then that was North Hollywood. It was North Hollywood. Now, it was pure no-ho like in a way. But at that time when I grew up, if you like the Starbucks on Lancashire was the KFC. And okay. if you went there and you left your bike out without a lock, a chain, <laughs> it was going to get jacked. And Lancashire was really legitimately like Boyle Heights or like East Los. And it was a Spanish speaking theater that is that new bougie theater. And like there was no comedy clubs or like bad, like Nashville hot chicken. Like it was like entirely Spanish speaking. And the coolest thing there was like the dojo from Karate Kid and which you knew that, right? Yeah. And also a bitch in army surplus. Wow. But it was a dangerous hood. And I grew up on the edge of that in the sort of very like milk toast, middle class valley edge. So we called it North Hollywood. But yeah. Well, now North Hollywood, just for people listening at home, the way that Los Angeles is flipping, mm-hmm. they're making up new names for sections of North Hollywood. So Valley Village is North Hollywood. Yeah. Right. So, so that was my thing. And there was yeah. no punk rockers in my neighborhood. Like, okay. it, I grew up on a street where when I was 13, there was probably four or five guys between the age of 16 and 20. And there was probably like four or five guys and girls that were like between 10 and 14. Okay. So there was probably 15 of us on a block that all knew each other from birth. And it was the kind of house where you left the house and you're like, what are we doing? Are like, are we putting on flags or pads and playing football? Are we going to build a skateboard ramp? Are we going to build a fort? Like it was like, you know, the Wonder Years meets like Days and Confused, and my neighbors were my entryway to most music. And, and so what were the, they playing? So the guy directly to my left, Eric, um, you know, was was the first time I heard Van Halen one was at his house. You know, <laughs> the first time like he would play Eruption next door, right. and we only had a driveway separating us. And I would go through the gate into his house and like literally like go under the bars in his window give a little fist bump to the window. The windows would open. I'd go in his room unannounced, you know, it was like late seventies, early eighties. And the girls to my right turned me on to the B 52s and the pretenders. Wow. Early, early. That's amazing. I mean, you did B 52s, huge part of my musical upbringing and the pretenders. um, I, Chrissy Hine is in my Holy grail, like top 10 of all time. Pretenders first album is Flawless. Desert Desert Island record for me. No question. Which label was your dad working for? My dad at the time, like, so when we first, um, like, he first worked for a label called 20th Century Records, which was uh, 
like Carl Douglas Kung Fu Fighting and Barry White and very few other things. And he promoted those records. And then he bounced and ended up at a record called record label called CBS before it split into Epic and Sony. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, Epic and Columbia under the uh, under the umbrella of Sony. Yeah. So he was at CBS Records and that was pretty notable in the late 70s when I was very young because when the Jacksons left Motown, they signed with CBS. Mm-hmm. And if you really look at the first records, they dropped, there was still, the five turned into an S. So they couldn't use Jackson five anymore. So the Jackson's. S is suspiciously like a five. Mm-hmm. Wow. People don't really catch That's it. That's good intel. And so the Jacksons were on my dad's label. And then when, um, when Michael went solo, my dad promoted Off the Wall and Thriller. Wow. And Bad. So you had that in the air. I, w- I, I was like really there. Holy like at the, Christ. At, at the Jackson family house and at the world premiere Thriller and at the concert when he first played those uh, uh, Thriller songs with Jackson's on either the uh, Triumph or Destiny Tours. I was around that quite a bit. And, and the, the Jackson house was in Encino? The, the Jackson house was on Havenhurst. Wow. So yeah, like, so like my dad, like this crazy musical thing. So like my dad was like promoting like Michael Jackson, Luther Vandross, Tina Marie. Also behind all this, like sort of the, like the backstory is like my dad also like was friends with the Temptations. So like one of those guys, like the baritone Melvin Franklin was like kind of like a godfather. Oh, wow. And wow. I grew up at Barry White's house, which was all really cool. Where was Barry White's house? Encino. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody lives in Encino. Man. Is that right? Yeah. I know Dio lived in Encino. It may have been Tarzana, but it was all like Valley Hills. And so like that was a part of my background and it was cool, but it wasn't exciting. And my mom, see like my dad's, my dad's black and from Los Angeles. I'm second generation Angelino. My wow. dad is like from South Central, from like a rough part of town. And then like went to LA Valley College, like because he was like a theater major and he wanted, they had a good theater program and he wanted to be an actor. And he met my mom who is uh, a Jewish girl from Brighton beach who had just moved to the Valley a few years before. And wow. they, they met at Valley college and they were hippies and they started dating and my dad was a tour guide at Universal Studios tour. And then he got a job in the mailroom at 20th Century Records. And they were like, hey, kid, do you want to promote a record? This is how you do it. Like, take this record, go to the radio station and like try and like, like totally like those bad shows they do and like on HBO and stuff. Right. And he did that. And then they were like, let's have a kid. And he very quick and he was like getting acting gigs and he was on Ironside and, and Ellery Queen and that's my mama. <laughs> and he was doing like, you know, sort of bad, like seventies exploitation movie type. He did one of those. It was pretty cool. Called the pink angels about a gay biker gang. <laughs> and, and this then, is real once upon a time in Hollywood stuff. Yeah. I mean, like, dude, that's real. And like, yeah. that was my upbringing. And so then he was like, well, let's have a kid. I got to get a real gig. And so that was meant when one of their friends, there was about seven of them who lived on hippie Hill, which was Vista Del Mar above the one Oh one hippie Hill. Vista Del Mar was called hippie Hill. And my mom and dad lived amongst like five or six right or there seven, at Franklin and Gower straight up Vista Del Mar. Wow. Which is next to St. Stephen's church. So one block wow. west of the 101 yeah. and that hotel, yeah. that was always called the Hollywood Hills Coffee Shop. And that like, dude, oh. my parents hung out there in 67, 68, and they lived Long up on Long before Hill. Swingers made it cool. Long before <laughs> Vince Mott stood up on the table and said, I'll never eat here. Um, yeah. So they, that, was, that was their hang. And someone from the apartment was like, hey, wow. man, do you want a job at like uh, at this record company in the newsroom, in the mailroom? So he did that jumping forward so that was cool but my mom was a folky so it was james taylor bob dylan the beatles um 
and CSN. And that was the other side of my music. But what happened is being born in 73, being 10 and 83, I discovered K-Rock and I listened to right. K-Rock. So at the same time that I discovered K-Rock, Run DMC put out their first record. So like for me as a child, it was like, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be like, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be Nick Rhodes or DMC. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, you have everything going on. You have like every single Southern California influence running through your veins. Including the one you just put on, which I was going to say something about earlier, but I knew it was going to make your list. And so I didn't want to, I didn't want to blow it. Because well, this is I mean, a deep one. This is a deep it's Los Valley. Angeles song. And I believe Petty lived in those hills as well. He did. <laughs> this is a, this is a big one. Yeah, I mean, for everybody. For everybody. I saw this show. Ugh. I was at the last show at the Hollywood Bowl. I was there. Before he died. Okay. I was at the last show ever. Yeah. When you. people sing this song, yeah. like, it's goosebumps. It's crazy. I was at the soundboard with the wives. Oh shit! I was next. Okay. I was next. I was literally next to the soundboard. I was standing next to the soundboard. Wow! I was fortunate that a friend said, "Hey, my wife's out of town. I got four or five tickets. Do you want to go?" And I was like, "Absolutely!" And I was standing. I walked away from my seat to go stand by the soundboard because I knew a couple of people from that camp. And it was, you know, one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. And now it takes on this other meaning that you and I have that we could say we were at the last one. Yeah. And you want to know it's eerie. Like a buddy of mine backstage said, uh, there's talk that this could be the last one. And I said, what does that mean? And I didn't know anything. Just somebody said to me, like, yeah, like they might not do it again. And I don't have any inside information. No sure. one ever said anything again. Right. But I was like, that just can't be. Right. Well, so, we know he was not well at that time. He had he'd broken his hip. So what, what definitely happened is he had broken his hip on tour. And the doctor was like, and the band were like, you just got to go home. It's a wrap. And like, they're like, we don't have to do this anymore, man. And he's like, no, we, we do. We have to keep it going. So at, at the, we just, she wants revenge just did three nights at the Roxy, which totally ties into Nick Adler and the story we're talking about yeah. and Gail and all of that. And, and while we did it, we did a cover and I said, we announced the cover. I said, this is a song that is written by somebody from Gainesville, Florida, but who moved here in the seventies and who really claimed being an Angelino and who really was an adopted son of this city and the valley and things come to mind century city ventura boulevard mulholland like he sang about it he lived it Reseda. Reseda. i mean that's valid that's you know that's valid i mean that's 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 deep valley that's the you know that's karate kid i mean that's as deep as it gets right and so we ended up doing um you got lucky because it's right up our alley, okay, right? With the right. synths and the whole sound. But man, this is somebody that I, I, I'm, I'm pretty good friends with his daughter. Oh, okay. Oh, and wow. Okay. I never had a chance to meet him. And uh, I have another band that I, pl that I made a record with and we played for a while called Dream Club that uh, we got, we had the good fortune of opening up for Mike Campbell and the Dirty Knobs at the Viper Room and then uh, 
And so having Mike Campbell come up and go, hey man, you guys sound really good, man. <laughs> was like, for sure. You know, it was crazy. And then when I saw him backstage yeah. at, the, at the bowl, the last show, and I'm like, he got introduced and I'm like, oh no, we opened for you at the Bible. He goes, oh yeah, man. <laughs> I met Steve Ferroni and all these guys and I was just like, this Damn. is it. But that's, it's a quintessential LA song, man. It's like, he's an adopted son. Some people come here and... You know, some people come here and, and, and like hang on to that like baseball cap of their team from back home, right. wherein they lived in, you know, Nebraska for 15 years and they've right. lived in LA for 25. Right. You know? Yeah. And then some people come here and embrace it. And one of the things that really drew me to you was besides your musical knowledge, your sense of humor, your your vibe, and just your whole like warm, welcoming, gregarious nature was also like Man, you would post pictures of like, of like my favorite laundromat in the valley. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of my Twitter shticks of uh, reviewing coin-op laundromats in the yeah. valley, and also rating my favorite Seven Elevens in the valley because you have to have a good a favorite Seven Eleven. And if you know the valley, you know like the Foxfire. You know the, that's the right. you know you you, you know Baronies. Oh, did I dinner that Friday night? <laughs> you did? Of course God I did. damn it! Every one of my ch child's birthdays has had Baroni's pizza, except for this last year. <laughs> Every year. <laughs> so yeah, man, like, and Baroni's, for those that don't know, it's a, it's an Italian restaurant that used to have three locations, one in Sherman Oaks, one in, uh, one in Toluca Lake, and one third, I forget. And then they all closed and then they reopened in a location that used to be a German restaurant at the corner of Woodman and Oxnard, which is famous because that is where Mike Damone brought Mark Ratner his wallet when he was on the date with Jennifer Jason Lee. Last time. God damn it, dude. And he said, hey, funny thing, right? I was just, I found your wallet. And he hands it to him and he keeps ordering Cokes, waiting for Damone to bring his wallet. That's Baroni's, but it was Get a German restaurant. Get the fuck out. Yeah, man. Dude. Can we do a little side tangent? Please. So you said you just played the Roxy recently, right? Yeah. And I noticed that the Campfire Girls opened for you. Yeah. How did that come about? I used to manage that band. When? When they got back together in the late 90s and yeah. re-signed to Interscope. Okay, so I was a horrible manager. I think I ruined their career. You, de you let me let me tell you, knowing them as well as I do, they ruined their own career. You did not ruin their career. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep this brief because I, I I don't want, I, I I am in incredibly verbose. I have a terrible edit function in in my uh, in my verbal skills and uh, and their songs to play. So I'll keep this brief. The Campfire Girls, as I told from the stage that night, um, I was making a record at A&M before it was called Henson Studios. Yeah. I was making a record with um, my first sort of classic rock band, which was, you know, not the best band ever, but we were, we were trying. And my bass player and best friend had just come back from Bar Deluxe. It was 1994. He walked in the studio. It was about two in the morning. And I was probably super drunken at the mixing board. And he goes, dude, we fucked up. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, I just saw this band at Deluxe. And they're called the Campfire Girls. And they're the dopest band in town. And I don't know why we just made this fucking record for the last three months because we should just start over. And what actually happened was we finished the record. I did a rap song in the UK, which 
ended up totally changing the course of my life. And the person who produced it was like, why are you making that bad rock stuff back at home? I went back to the States after that success. I toured with that band locally. We never got out of LA. It imploded like with the personalities. And from the ashes of that, I started a band called One Inch Punch that was absolutely influenced by the Campfire Girls. Really? And we ended up signing a deal with the rap producer. The guy produced my rap song in the UK who had a group called Bomb the Bass. And he signed us to Virgin Records and we ended up touring. And that was like the start of my career in like alternative rock. Yeah. And so the Campfire Girls were a huge influence on me. Yeah. I became very close friends with them through a friend named Scott Thomas and a guy named Michael Muller, who's a pretty celebrated photographer, yeah. who um, was driving them around in the van for their first tours in 93, oh, yeah. 94. Yeah. And so it was all a very close and incestuous scene with another band called Plexi, who's another great band oh, yeah. from Los Angeles. And we were all friends. And I was just like the dude who absolutely worshiped them and wasn't making very good music, mm -hmm. who went on to be inspired by them and make pretty decent yeah. music. And so it was just really me paying it forward. Yeah, I think Christian Stone is one of the best singer-songwriters I've ever met. <laughs> He's incredible. And I'm lobbying hard for them to do a new record, which I may co-produce. Um, so having them play the shows was really special for Los Angeles. Yeah. And it was really special for me because I got to get up on stage and like tell people who are devoted fans of ours, without these dudes, we wouldn't be here. That's and, and I also met Andrew Clark, the bass player, yeah. um, in probably 1992. So wow. we're talking about guys that have known each other for like 28 years. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Right on. I wish I was there. Right yeah. on. They're playing more shows. Give me your, uh, not to change gears quickly. Yeah, please do. Uh, give me your go-to Valley taco place. <laughs> well, I mean, we're talking Just Henry's? your go-to. Uh, well, Henry's is a no-brainer. Henry's is a no-brainer. Like, so like my wife, who's from St. Louis and who's been here since 95, so she's an Angelino. Um, she loves Henry's even more than I do. Yeah. Um, Henry's is, I mean, I was outside protesting and like on the news. When like, they moved? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean. That should have been an, uh, a historic landmark. Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with cactus. Cactus is very good. Speaking of cactus, yeah, I don't go there though. Fair enough. The, the, for people listening at home, the uh, taco burger at Henry's, I think, is one of the best food items. I think in I've only had that once. It is for me. It's mind blowing. So when I'm when I'm ten, eleven years old, yes, we get the girl next door who had turned us on to the like new wave and the pretenders. Her older sister who drove would take us kids to Henry's Tacos, and we'd have to get like seventy five cents a taco from our moms, and then she'd take us to Thrifty's at the corner of Ventura and Laurel Canyon, which is probably now Rite Aid. It's Rite Aid, <clears throat> and yep. we would go get our ice cream, and like it was Henry's and, and Rite Aid, and that was the Valley Jam. That's all you need, and. Do you know that um, where Daily Grill and all that and the coffee bean is, that was a really cool car wash. Laurel Canyon and Ventura. was a big car wash. No shit. Yeah. Wow. So my go-to Valley Taco, I'm going to tell you. Yes. <clears throat> I am a hardcore Pequino Moss person. Okay. But I go to the original, which... You know, I think it's been there since like 84. Um, it's on Coanga Pass, right? Over by the In-N-Out. But my favorite Valley Taco, and I'm going to give them a little love, is uh, Casita on Magnolia. Um, across from the Greyhound Station, across from the... Clump. 
On Clump. <laughs> yeah. Or Bachman. Yeah. It's either Bachman yeah. or Clump and Magnolia. Yeah. yeah. Casita. Casita, man. Next that, to the laundromat? Next, next to, to like the haircut the, place. The haircut There's place. four parking spots. Holy Hope you get one. Shit. It is the best carne asada, the best chicken soft tacos, and Dude. like taco like truck style, and the hottest salsa in town. That's now, my spot. I will say this. The, the, the parking lot looks like you have to navigate some... Uh, it's heavy. Some, some <laughs> it's suspicious a, characters. It's a sketchy parking lot. Because the 7-Eleven the uh, block away... Yeah. At uh, Magnolia and Tahunga is yeah. the roughest and toughest Seven uh, Eleven in that area. It's a great. But you're going for Casita. That's yeah, amazing. That's my spot. I want to give a shout out to Pablitos. What's that? Pablitos is a Peruvian spin. They set up in the parking lot of fucking Circus Liquors. No at way. Burbank and Vineland. <gasps> six nights a week. Mind blowing. Wow. Because they put this. They have this thing called the cheese taco, where they they hand make their tortillas. Uh-huh. They take the tortilla. They put a mound of cheese on it. They put that on the grill. They flip it and sear that cheese into the into the taco then they turn it over and put what you want on that's top crazy. of that. I got to take my son cuz he like follows a burrito place online that does that and yeah that would be right up his It's uh, it's incredible. Oh shit. the fuck you guys listening to? Oh, hi, it's Ahmed Zappa. <laughs> doing a drive-by. <laughs> well, I mean, when you play that song... I'm doing a, a podcast with our old friend Justin Warfield, and I'm giving Justin five or six of my favorite songs about Los Angeles. What the fuck's going on? <laughs> I'm so pumped right now. I didn't know this was coming. I don't know how I didn't put two and two together, but this song was going to happen on the pod. I'm like, that's, I was just like, duh, went right into it. When was the last time I ran into you? I haven't seen you in forever. Long time. I think it was at uh, my cousin Lala's like baby shower or something. <laughs> that was a good in one. In the Valley, speaking yeah. of. Yeah. You know, Valley people, Valley girls. The most important song about the Valley ever written. I would say. Would yeah. you say? Even though it was mocking the valley, I know for sure that many of the Zappa family members love the valley. Absolutely. And I, I think, never took offense. I thought it was great. Do you remember when the song came out? I do. Did you know Moon then? No. You did not. Mm-hmm. Okay. I did. She was 14 years old. I did. <laughs> you did know Moon? Yeah. I was, I was, <laughs> How well? Yeah, pretty, pretty, you, pretty well. Pretty well? You yeah. live in the same house? Yeah. Uh-huh. Can, you you, you want to give us any details about the song, how the song was put together? Uh, I believe she wrote a note. She was 14 uh, years old. She wrote a note to um, Frank and uh, was like, hey, I'm your daughter. Remember me? Something <laughs> like that. Like, I'd love to spend some time with you or something. Slipped it under the studio door. Yeah. Slipped it under, <laughs> uh, under the stu- uh, studio door. And, and then, like, in the middle of the night, um, uh, you know, I guess he remembered that she was did this funny voice. And, you know, he wrote this song and asked her to do that funny voice and do some, do some improv. And all I remember is it landed her a gig on chips. <laughs> That's incredible. Eric, Eric Estrada, bro. I think I, I have like this headshot with him. He spelled my name wrong on it. You know, like keep reaching for the stars, <laughs> something like that. Love Ponch. That's <laughs> so great. epic. It's so epic, right? Oh my god! You, now, as a Valley resident, yeah, do you, were there girls <laughs> truly talking like that in that style? 
I mean, that was obviously like exaggerated, but I mean, dude, listen to the way I talk. <laughs> I mean, I'm fucking, I'm fucking black Jew from, from West Toluca Lake. And I sound like, you know, like vowels go home. Like, you know what I mean? I sound like somebody is going to get chased off the beach. Um, no, for real. Like I went to a private school in the San Fernando Valley and at the weekend I Coke-wood. was, <laughs> and at the weekend I was, did you go to Cokewood Elementary too, or no? I, I went. I went to the country school with. I went there. I know, uh, obviously. Yeah, and and which because we're the same age. No, I'm forty six, turning forty seven. Yeah, we were in class together. But you're not in the class picture I have, so I don't know how we weren't. Because he was probably not there. <laughs> I mean, he yeah, probably never that. went to there, school. There is that. But I actually think we were in fucking preschool together. Yeah. And then I bounced to join a cult, and that's a true story. Mm-hmm. And I was like part of a weird school that was connected to a church, and that was awful. And when I broke out of there, I went to Oakwood and had a great experience. But it was like weekends at the Sherman Oaks Galleria. Yeah. Um, Dude, there's a guy named Ian King. Who, uh, do, you, do you remember, um, uh, the, you know, the actor Breckenmeyer? Of course. We went to, cause you were in class with him too, right? He was in Frank our class. Frank is older, Brecken's younger. So yeah. So, all right. And when we went to preschool, yeah. that's where we first met Brecken. Wow. Okay. I did not know that. Isn't that crazy? So anyways, later on in life at the Sherman Oaks Galleria where, you know, where my sister is singing, singing about the Sherman Oaks Galleria and that song, uh, this guy, Ian King was picking on, uh, Brecken because uh-huh. Brecken is the legal dwarf. Um, and, uh, and I mean that lovingly, he's a good friend. Uh, he is vertically challenged. Um, but at the mall, uh, this, you know, Ian is being a real jerk. I'm like, hey, man, why don't you fucking pick on someone your own size, bro? You know, and he's like, you want to go? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like shitting my fucking pants. It's like my, it's going to be my first fight. But I feel pretty good because I'm sticking up for, for uh, Brecken. Uh-huh. And, and we'd all seen the Karate Kid, so we knew what we were doing. Yeah, stand you on know? one foot, do the crane. Know, we, we, knew, we knew what to do. We walk right outside, right right on the corner of fucking um, Sepulveda and Ventura. Oh, my God. And Ian King just does a roundhouse kick into my face. And no, I he doesn't. <laughs> and drop you right yeah, there on Ventura. Drop me, boom, like that. That's incredible. Yeah. Did you ever get in a fight? at the Sherman Oaks Galleria? No. <laughs> I saved it all for the yeah, foremost you, years you, later. Yeah. Oh, I, I had a fight there too. Probably the same one. But That's I won that fight. Yeah. You like did? That, you huh? had a fight that you won? Yeah, that at guy the was Formosa. a douche. The Formosa. Kevin what Hicks. was that? I was in that fight. We were in that fight, right? We were in that fight. I was on the other side, and that's why I only pulled people off of people because I knew you both. Why was Ahmed Zappa fighting Kevin? Kevin was my best friend, and they got I wasn't fighting Kevin. Kevin, Who was fighting? Kevin Kevin was like choking me out, dragging me outside until he realized (laughs) it was me. And it was the other dude who was a fucking asshole. I don't remember who who it was, but there was like bottles thrown, Cass was crying. It was amazing. Yeah. Damn. Was was a girl involved? Oh, and you know what? Steve Barra was about to get punched. <laughs> I, he tells this story whenever he, he whenever he uh, introduced me to somebody the first time. He goes, "I was about to get punched," and Justin stepped up and said, "No, no, no, that's Barra. He's cool." And that person put their fist down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Steve Barra, pro skater, one of my yeah. best friends. He, 20, uh, actually, Steve could have been here today. He's oh. often here in this office. Yeah. Can you give us any more little nuggets from the Valley Girl song before you take off? Other than it also landed Moon and Gig on Elvira, which was 
<laughs> Mistress of the Dark, which was super important. Still so hot. And and don't for and don't forget. Uh, I know she is Cassandra Peterson. That's crazy. Uh, the other the other thing that um, was powerfully awesome about Moon doing that song was the the TV show Solid Gold, which you can if you ask your friend the internet to cop that shit up, that's a good time. Moon she on Solid performed? Gold. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. no way. Oh yeah. Okay. And she also lost. She was uh, she, she was Grammy nominated and lost the Grammy uh, to I Have the Tiger. <laughs> Survivor. That's fucking incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That was the same year. Fucking powerful year. Bam. <laughs> bam, bam, bam. Wow. Well, uh, thank you. I, I, did, I was not expecting gentlemen. to to, uh, to uh, crop dust. I love crop it. Crop dust uh, the Brando cast. But um, Warfield, so good to see you. Let's hang it's out sometime soon. I would love that. Do you remember yeah. Justin when he had orange hair in high school? I was told that by our mutual friend Rio Hackford. Yeah, That's his favorite memory of you, it's that true. you rocked orange hair. When it's you were true. in high school, so is that true? true? Yeah. Hey, what, whatever. <laughs> the Nick Rhodes period. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally. love seeing you. Every time I see you, it's it's like. I guess that's the weird thing about growing up in L.A. Is, yeah. You know, it feels like yesterday. But, Absolutely. Uh, but whatever happened to Ethan Brown? That's a really good question. Because we went to country school with Ethan too, right? I did not know Ethan was there. Yeah, I was really Jackson not Brown was son. not very paying very good attention. He had a, a was Ethan Brown Jackson Brown's son. Yeah, yeah. Ethan's oh. great. Yeah, oh, I for real, I haven't yeah. seen him. That's in a, very odd because there's a tie-in to that. <laughs> well, 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 there you go. Well, Ethan, if you're listening, I uh, miss you. Love to see you. Let, let's catch up. I, I saw Jackson. Yeah. I actually saw Jackson mm-hmm. at a Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers show when he did the Six Nights at the Fonda, and I saw him on the rooftop, or it might have been when ELO played there a little underplay and I saw Jackson and I said I spent a little time around him and I said hey how's Ethan he said he's doing really good man and he sort of told me whatever and then he lost his glasses so we all look for Jackson's glasses for 10 minutes yeah. That's a great, it's a great story. It's a great story. A lot of beginning. My ex-girlfriend no used. <laughs> My ex-girlfriend used finish. to live across the hall from a girl that he was dating in the '90s, and we always used to hear them fighting. That's my Jackson Brown story. But Darryl this is the Hannah? Eagles. No, not Daryl Hannah. Just a girl. Just a girl. Like a regular girl. Well, this is not Jackson Brown. This is a girl. A girl. Cool. Right, this guys, is the Eagles. I, bye. I got a jam. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Bye. 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 Do, can I ask you, do you know why, I'm going to quiz you, do you know why I'm playing Lion Eyes by the Eagles it as an Sowler? L.A. song? Is it J.D. Sowler? It's J. He probably wrote it. Right. No, Glenn and Don wrote it. Right. The reason that I'm playing Is this, this about Lucy's Zolodobie? <laughs> it's about Dan Tannis. Oh. That's right. So, right. So I know the story about this. Yeah. So Don saw a woman at the bar at Dan Tannis. Yes. And he, through one quick glance, wrote this entire song about what he imagined her life to be. The the twist of that, too, is that she saw him with a rich old guy. Right. And she'd been hanging out with the band. Oh. And the, 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 uh, you can fade this because I don't like the Eagles enough to listen to this anymore. I, I love can't. them. Where are you going? Keep it up. <laughs> uh, let's fade it. <laughs> but anyway, it's interesting to me because this, it was a song about the escorts. And the sugar babies uh, right. that they would hang out like they would they would hang out with the rock stars, but then they would go home right. to their sugar daddies. Wow, mm-hmm. line That's eyes. Good. Yeah, I mean, there's I mean, again, there's so many honorable mention songs that I could have said. You know, any almost any Beach Boy song. Yeah. I wanted to play a Beach Boy song because I know that you're a surfer. Also, worst Don Henley lyric ever. Oh. 
His jacuzzi runneth over. <laughs> That's a real lyric. His jacuzzi runneth over. Dude actually wrote that lyric. What well, song? once you get so bloated and, and making so much money, and that's your life experience when your jacuzzi runs over. I you mean, that's just the deal. I'm just being like, hey, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote this one lyric. Check it out. Even though his jacuzzi runneth over. <laughs> did I hear? Did you play a little Beach Boys? You did play a little Beach Three Boys. Three seconds. Did, Interesting. Give, give me 10 seconds of that Beach Boys. Because I want to know where he would, where Justin would surf. Yeah. Where was your surfing spot? Well, because my grandpa had a condo in Malibu at what's called Carbon Beach, um, I grew up surfing right in front of there. <clears throat> and then I would go to Second Point Malibu. First. What's Second Point? So when you go to Malibu, Surfrider Beach, where the pier is, where yeah. Alice's was famously, right? Across from the Malibu Saloon. First point is the uh, the first place where surfers, traditionally longboarders, line up uh, to the left of the pier, which is north of the pier. And on a good swell, you could shoot the pier and go through it. So first point is considered among the top 10 waves in the world because it's a perfect wave, but it's also designed for a longboarder. It's a short wave unless it's really firing and gets taller. Second point is closer to the Malibu Lagoon, and Third Point was on the edge of the colony. <clears throat> and Third Point was where the shredders and rippers went and like the kids with the shortboards. Second Point was an in-between spot. First Point was the most perfect wave. I was just a kid who was not gonna be in the lineup, and so I would just sit on the inside, meaning closer to shore of Second Point, wait for the waves and white water to break, catch that, then it would reform and I would catch that because then there was no competition for waves, and I was 10 years old alone. And, and does that mean the lineup meaning like the guys who control the beach or the surf. It, it has that connotation, but the lineup is literally where you line up in the water waiting for, on the shoulder or in the water waiting for the wave to come. Right. And if the surfers don't want you there, yeah. they won't let you in the lineup, correct? Yes. It is sort of called that for sure. Like, and that's sort of the connotation and, and, and yeah. Because but, I know at Leo Carrillo, like yeah. if you're a beginner at Leo Carrillo yeah. and you try to go out by yeah. the, the big rock there yeah. where they're all waiting, they won't let you drive drop in, correct? I, I don't find that to be true. I okay. mean, I think that there's certain beaches that are known as what we call localized. Okay. Where you, like, you have to earn, here's the thing, anybody can paddle into any break, into any lineup, but rather, um, whether or not you're going to get shit for taking a wave or follow the protocols or have like the etiquette is another thing. So I could paddle out at first point and not know any, I mean, I do know people there, but I wouldn't take off on a wave. I would wait until everybody who's been there for years and has the best position, meaning furthest back, right? Furthest back in the wave gets get some um, priority. So I would wait until everyone else had a wave and I would have a conversation and get to know the waters and the vibe and feel it out. And eventually someone would go, Hey man, take one. And I'd be oh, cool. And then I would drop in on something, but not on someone. Right. Right. So you sort of read the room and that's how you have to do it with surfing because there's scarcity and scarcity of anything, as you know, creates tension and aggression. And so it's not like a skate park where it's like, yeah, man, I'm just going to hang out while you take a run. It's like, that wave is coming and it may not come for another 10 minutes or another hour. So yeah. So I surfed Malibu. I grew up as a Malibu local, um, which was really crazy in the seventies and eighties. And I say seventies cause you know, I was seven years old in 1980 and 79 and 80, but I know what it was like to be in Los Angeles in the seventies. I remember it, but I grew up as a Malibu local and I really never, I never surfed Zuma. I never went to Santa Monica cause we thought it was dirty and public and why go? And I was spoiled. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so I was a Malibu kid. I was a total Malibu rat. Um, staircase, um, staircase is rad. Um, but 
but Zero's is my jam. Is Zero's Nicholas Canyon Beach? Is that the real name for? I will neither confirm nor deny. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, fair enough. Yeah, I love um, that. And you know, I know you take the dog and go to those parts, and and like yeah. it's funny because before um, the internet. Um, El Matador, El Pescador, and La Piedra were beaches where you could kind of go semi-nude because no one knew about it, man. Uh-huh. And now? And now it's like, you know, you Google best low-key beach or whatever. And yep. it's, you know, so I, we went to Leo to like party on the rocks and have wine coolers and hang out mm-hmm. as a teen. <laughs> Amazing. Right? And to go camping in the campgrounds at Leo Carrillo. And we would go to Staircase, like the older dudes, like the Heshers I know would take me to Staircase or to Zeros. Um, now my preferred spot is Heavens. Heavens? Yeah. I will, and I will not ask you to tell I'll me tell where, you where Heavens is. is tell me where cool. Heavens is. If you go to Leo Carrillo and yeah. you go to the parking lot office on the beach side, yeah. right? Like you see, so you go like you're going to the campground and you go under the tunnel, under the bridge. Right. To, if you go to the far end of the parking lot, right. as, far, as far north as you can go, like that's heavens. Right. So you keep going past Leo, past the rock, past that in-betweener zone. Where and that then you weird get to little the, like lifeguard house is. Yeah. Then you keep going and you're at heavens. Okay. And then heavens then turns into staircase. Right. Turns into county line. So you just go under the bridge? You just go under the bridge. Look at that. <laughs> you can only do the show with five guys. There's five people qualified to do this. Yeah. And you're one of them. It's an honor. And I feel like this song, too. I don't know how you feel about the Chili Peppers, personally. I, I fucking love the Red Hot okay. Chili Peppers. Okay, and this is, to me, this is one of the greatest songs ever written about the city of Los Angeles. I get angry when people talk shit about the Chili Peppers. <laughs> I feel like they're talking shit about the Lakers. Sometimes I feel like I'm just listen to this for a second here. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in. The city this is a big one. 1992. Yeah. Lonely We're talking about in the middle of the, the golden age of hip hop, <clears throat> but coming off of Mother's Milk, which to me is just incredible. I'm 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 in eighth grade. No, seventh grade, because Daryl Forshpan got kicked out for smoking and for having a joint in his locker in seventh grade. He couldn't have been there in eighth grade. In seventh grade, Daryl Forshpan had a leather jacket. Oh, Daryl Forshpan. And he looked like Richard Grieco. Yeah. In 21 Jump Street. And Daryl saw that I was listening to Fishbone on my Walkman and said, if you like Fishbone, you should check out this band. And the next day, he brought me a copy on vinyl of Freaky Styly. And I went from Freaky Styly to the Uplift Mofo Party Plan and went backwards to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And when my mom remarried, <clears throat> my new cousin, like who I inherited, was a bass player who was into Fishbone, 24-7 Spies, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <clears throat> and he really educated me on the Chili Peppers deeper than I had gone. And I became really, really about it. And... Um, I will always be a staunch defender of them because to me, they are one of the most quintessential Los Angeles groups who, who did it their own way yep. from day one and uncompromising. You don't have to love every era. You don't have to love every song. You could say what you want. But to me, like flea court side under the basket 
at Staples Center. He is our Jack now. Like they did a song about Magic Johnson, yeah. you know, there and under the bridge blew it all wide open when they made that record on Laurel Canyon with Rick. And to me, you know, I'm a Valley kid, but a lot of my friends went to Fairfax and Hollywood High. And they are Fairfax. They are Poinsettia Park. They're as real as it gets. They're man. As real as it gets. Because I used to play basketball at Poinsettia Park in the '90s, and they would show up every once in a while. Both of them, Flea and Anthony, together. That's amazing. And Flea would sometimes <clears throat> he still plays at uh, the YMCA. Right. With us, I will give you one of my great LA experiences. Please. In the very early '90s, 1992. I did a play written by my friend Betsy Thomas called Us and Them, and Donovan Leach was one of the characters in the play. So Donovan in 1992 took me into his world for a little while. Wow, that must have been huge. How long have you been in L.A. at that point? Two years. Wow. I'd been in L.A. because I got here in 1990. Wow. So he he took me to Drew Barrymore's 16th birthday at Cosmo. Yeah. You know what I mean? What was Cosmo? It was like, it was on Cosmo and Selma in Hollywood. It was like underneath the That's the OB building. Right, exactly. And then it was called the Gaslight. Yeah, the Gaslight. Right. Whatever. Amazing. So anyway... So he would play basketball at, they would play basketball at Wonderland Elementary School. I played, I played dunk ball with them in the Beasties. Me too. So cut to me, it's just me, Donovan, Flea, Anthony, Ad-Rock, and one of their other fancy friends. And, you know, I'm, we've played basketball yeah. together. I'm okay. Yeah. And it, they were just normal as punch, but I was just kind of in a full panic the whole time I was there. And to, do you know what I mean? Oh, I do. And to provide context, the rims were eight feet tall, so yeah. you could dunk if you and we did. had that ability. Yeah. And so even though I grew up in the all the things we're talking about and with all the people, I still held the Beastie Boys in the kind of regard that like our parents would hold, you know, John Paul George and Ringo. I totally understood. They were a def- different thing for me. Right. And so when, you know, through Ahmed's cousin Lala, <clears throat> I had some time around them. And I remember being up at the courts with my friend Jackson and, and Rob Montalbano and all those guys. And Rob was my sort of gateway to the, to the beasties. And the only time I'd ever seen them in person before was when my dad was like, Hey, do you want to go to soul train taping? Cause the beastie boys are on and they did Shadrach and it was amazing. And yeah, I was wow. there and wow. watched it and came in the dress room and said what's up and they were listening to like maggot brain or something and i was like oh my god and dying so i remember playing basketball one day and i was skating the banks with yauk and i was playing basketball with rob montalbano um jackson a bunch of other jackson james you may remember him he lived up there he was also a doorman for many years uh and a bunch of friends and ad rock and I was asking Ad-Rock about the sampler that he used on the record on Paul's Boutique. And I mean, just, it was, it was everything. It just yeah. felt like Henry Hill at the Copa, yeah. you know, yeah. led in the room. Well, they had their own, they had their own part of LA that they ran. Yeah. yeah. That, you and know. Dono and Ioni and yep. Rob, and that was like a really cool scene. And Jason Nesmith was a part of that. That's, that that's when I met Jason and yeah. Rob. Yeah. That's cool, man. Yeah. Yeah, and the Chili Peppers were a huge part of that. I mean, dude, I mean, I remember I was, it was 1992. I was still a hip-hop artist. I didn't have a rock band. I was doing a music video in Griffith Park, and Anthony Kiedis came with, because um, he wanted to visit the director. And I remember being so stoked that he showed up, but he never came and talked to me and said hi. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, it's my video. He didn't come say hi. But I mean, I, you know, and there have been a lot of stories off, for off-air over the years of Chili Pepper stuff. But sure. I will say that 
whether I love every song or every era, I am a John Frusciante freak. And that's one of the greatest Los Angeles songs ever. And watching those guys, when I was able to stand 20 feet behind Flea on the stage at Grant Park at Lollapalooza, after I had played with She Wants Revenge and watching them play to 50,000 people when they brought Lollapalooza back in 2006, before it was like a thing again, watching them take the stage was one. And I've had a life in rock where I've been in the room and on stage and in the studio for a lot of heady shit. But watching them do their circle and warm up and then start the the guitar and then the build up of Can't Stop with the and 50,000 people going nuts and we all had goosebumps and we were watching on stage and it was like, oh my God, this is a killing machine. This is like our Zeppelin. <laughs> like they were so good. They're so good. Where do you think the bridge is in the song? Do you know? It, it oh, might I, be. No, you, I, you of do course know. I know. Yeah. Where, where's the bridge? First, first legal piece of first illegal piece of graffiti I ever did in my adult in my childhood life was there. No shit. So now it's a condo. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I can tell you exactly the bridge. So if you were driving on Temple and okay. going south, uh-huh. right where it crosses Second. There was a little triangle, and it was called the Belmont Tunnel. And you can Google it and look it up. Yeah, where Glendare Boulevard comes down into that. And they filmed colors there. And they filmed a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows because it's actually not a bridge. It's a tunnel. But it was a sort of outdoor, like sort of strange. It was like a layover yard for a train or something. And there was a tunnel that went to nowhere. And it was just this darkened tunnel with like a torn down fence in front of it. And Anthony famously told the story that he had gone there and he had bought dope from somebody and like shot up under that bridge and that tunnel wow. and the belt is called, called the Belmont tunnel. That's and you can incredible. Look it up. Yeah. That is incredible Intel. Most people have been wrong about that. Most people have been wrong about that. Dude, oh. we've been chatting. We can talk for a week. We're gonna. I'm gonna have you back. We're gonna do this all over again because you're fucking insane. Right. You're the perfect guest for this show. All right. Let's do an LA centric podcast. Yeah, we could do. A, we, you and I could do a, a, a podcast about where to eat in the valley. <laughs> we could review every restaurant on Ventura. Okay. I want to just throw in a couple honorable mentions. I could have. Jane says is one I, of my I'm, favorites. I'm very surprised that we didn't have a Jane. Song. We just have a limited amount of time. Sure. W- welcome to the jungle. The only reason I. Didn't put welcome into the welcome to the jungle in this is because it may or may not have been inspired by Seattle. Interesting. But Jane is says that true? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Could have also gone the way of um, running with the devil. Well, I mean, James Van Halen. Prime, I mean, Van, Van Halen we could is do a one pod of my just on Van Halen. Absolutely, and they're one of my god bands. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, I just chose not to. Can we turn this part down with me and the music? It's like <laughs> such, I hate hearing my music. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, well, we were listening to Justin's music. Do you want us to cut this out, or can we just no, keep going? No, I was on? just uh, all right. Keep we'll going. P- play us out with something else. Well, look what he did. That's why we have a producer here who's smart. To me. Yeah. The greatest Los Angeles band of all time. Two albums. Tell me. Two albums. That's all it took. Yeah, it's true. And two albums, they, to me, are the most important rock band to come out of Los Angeles because they merged hair metal, they merged goth, they merged punk, and they merged funk. 
And they did it with an, a nod to the multiculturalism of Los Angeles, to the Latino roots of Los Angeles, yeah. to Santeria, to they had the Chili Peppers and Fishbone on their first album playing horns. I mean, they were an embodiment of from Venice to the Valley, and they did it really well. But I will say, here's an interesting one that you can take friend of mine, Shane Powers, on his radio show and pod asked Morty Coyle who the greatest American rock band is. And it's tricky because when we say who the greatest rock band is, we always go for the Brits because they just did it better. So I thought about it. And I was like, who? And I brought it to my friend Michael Angelos from the 90s band Plexi. I said, if we had to say who's the greatest American rock and roll band, and it came down to two for me, either the Heartbreakers or Van Halen. And I landed on Van Halen. That of rock and roll, if you look at the body of work, even with Van Hagar, there's an argument that they're the greatest American rock band that ever lived. At one point in time, they were the best band on earth. Right. Because I saw the first show I ever saw was the Women and Children Tour. Then Fair Warning, then 1984 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And at that point in time, they were the best band on earth. That's insane. Yeah. I just didn't include them because we just had a limited period of time. Yeah, a limited thing, yeah. Dude, yeah. you've, you've crushed it today. Thank you. And it's I wanna, been a pleasure. I, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Anytime, man. It's really fun. I love it. I feel like Richard is screwing around. Are you going to play us out with something else? Or are you not? No. All right. Good. Ooh. <laughs> so heavy. Oh, it's so good. My favorite snare drum sound of all time. When I met... <laughs> yeah, your bong noise. When I met my wife and she was into Van Halen and got it, the fact that she was at like on her first date when I picked her up, she was watching uh, MTV like when it was just playing hip hop and she was playing hip hop, that was a good thing. And then we started talking and she said something about Van Halen. I was like, this is gonna work. I'm gonna marry this girl. Yeah. <laughs> You're the greatest. As are you. 